Letter eight of the Shirley Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Shirley Letters from California Mines in eighteen fifty one and eighteen fifty two by Dame Shirley, Louise Amelia Knapp Smith Clapp. Letter the eighth. Life and Characters at Indian Bar From Our Log Cabin, Indian Bar, October twentieth, 1851 Having seen me, dear M., safely enthroned in my beautiful log palace with its outer walls all tapestried with moss, perhaps you would like a description of the coronation dinner. You must know that Ned, the Paganini of the Humboldt, who, by the way, is almost an historic, or better perhaps, naval character, inasmuch as he was cook on board of the Summers when her captain performed his little tragedy, to the horror of an entire nation, had been in such a state of ecstasy ever since he had heard of the promised advent of Mrs. Blank, that his proprietors, as Ned grandly calls them, had serious fears of being compelled to straitjacket him. "'You see, sir,' said Ned, "'when the Queen—' With Ned, as with the rest of the world, a substitute shines brightly as a queen until a queen be by, and I am the only petticoated astonishment on this bar. Arrives, she will appreciate my culinary efforts. It is really discouraging, sir, after I have exhausted my skill in preparing a dish, to see the gentleman devour it with as much unconcern as though it had been cooked by a mere bungler in our art." When we entered our new home we found the cloth—it was a piece left of that which lined the room overhead—already laid. As it was unhemmed and somewhat tattered at the ends, an imaginative mind might fancy it fringed on purpose, though, like the poor little marchioness with her orange peel and water, one would have to make believe very hard. Unfortunately it was not wide enough for the table, and a dashing border of white pine banded each side of it. Ned had invested an unknown quantity of gold-dust in a yard of diaper, awfully coarse, which, divided into four pieces, and fringed to match the tablecloth, he had placed napkin-wise in the tumblers. He had evidently ransacked the whole bar to get viands wherewith to decorate the various dishes, which were as follows. First course, oyster soup. Second course, fried salmon caught from the river. Third course, roast beef and boiled ham. Fourth course, fried oysters. Vegetables, potatoes and onions. Pastry, mince pie and pudding made without eggs or milk. Dessert, Madeira nuts and raisins. Wines, claret and champagne. Coffee. I found that Ned had not overrated his powers. The dinner, when one considers the materials of which it was comprised, was really excellent. The soup was truly a great work of art, the fried oysters dreamily delicious, and as to the coffee, Ned must have got the receipt for making it from the very angel who gave the beverage to Mahomet to restore that individual's decayed moisture. Ned himself waited, dressed in a brand-new flannel shirt and calico ditto, his hair—he is a light mulatto—frizzled to the most intense degree of corkscrewity, and a benign and self-satisfied smile irradiating his face, such as should illuminate the features of a great artist when he knows that he has achieved something, the memory of which the world will not willingly let die. In truth, he needed but white kid-gloves to have been worthy of standing behind the chair of Count d'Orsay himself.
So grand was his air, so ceremonious his every motion, that we forgot we were living in the heart of the Sierra Nevada, forgot that our home was a log cabin of mere primitive rudeness, forgot that we were sitting at a rough pine table covered with a ragged piece of four-cent cotton cloth, eating soup with iron spoons. I wish, my funny little Molly, that you could have been here clairvoyantly. It was one of those scenes, just touched with that fine and almost imperceptible perfume of the ludicrous, in which you especially delight. There are a thousand minute shreds of the absurd which my duller sense overlooks, but which can never hope to escape your mirth-loving vision. Ned really plays beautifully on the violin. There is a white man, by the name of Chalk, who generally accompanies him. Of course, true daughter of Eve that you are, you will wish to know right off what Chalk's other name is. Young woman, I am ashamed of you. Whoever asks for the other name of Alexander, of Hannibal, of Homer? Suffice it that he is Chalk by himself, Chalk, and assistant violinist to Paganini Vatal Ned. Ned and one of his musical cronies, a white man, gave me a serenade the other evening. As it was quite cold, F. made them come inside the cabin. It was the richest thing possible to see the patronizing and yet serene manner with which Ned directed his companion what marches, preludes, etc., to play for the amusement of that profound culinary and musical critic, Dame Shirley. It must be confessed that Ned's love of the beautiful is not quite so correct as his taste in cooking and violin-playing. This morning a gentle knock at my door was followed by that polite person, bearing in triumph a small waiter, purloined from the Humboldt, on which stood in state, festooned with tumblers, a gaudy pitcher, which would have thrown Tearsole and Lily into ecstasies of delight. It was almost as wonderful a specimen of art as my chintz hanging. The groundwork is pure white, upon which, in bas-relief, are executed two diabolical-looking bandits, appallingly bewhiskered and moustached, dressed in red coats, yellow pantaloons, green boots, orange-coloured caps with brown feathers in them, and sky-blue bows and arrows. Each of the fascinating vagabonds is attended by a bird-of-paradise-coloured dog, with a crimson tail waggingly depicted. They are embowered beneath a morning-glory vine, evidently a species of the convolvulvus unknown in America, as each one of its pink leaves, springing from purple stems, is three times the size of the bandit's head. Ned could not have admired it more if it had been a jar of richest porcelain, or a rare Etruscan vase, and when I gently suggested that it was a pity to rob the bar-room of so elegant an ornament, he answered, Miners can't appreciate a handsome pitcher any more than they can good cooking, and Mrs. Blank will please to keep it. Alas, I would infinitely have preferred the humblest brown jug, for that really has a certain beauty of its own, and besides it would have been in keeping with my cabin. However, that good creature looked upon the miraculous vegetable, the fabulous quadrupeds, and the impossible bipeds, with so much pride that I had not the heart to tell him that the pitcher was a fright, but— Graciously accepting it, I hid it out of sight as quickly as possible, on the trunk washstand behind the curtain. We breakfast at nine and dine at six, with a dish of soup at noon for luncheon. Do not think we fare as sumptuously every day as we did at the coronation dinner. By no means, and it is said that there will probably be many weeks, during the season, when we shall have neither onions, potatoes, nor fresh meat. It is feared that the former will not keep through the whole winter, and the rancheros cannot at all times drive in cattle for butchering, on account of the expected snow. 
Ned is not the only distinguished person residing on this bar. There is a man camping here who was one of Colonel Fremont's guides during his travels through California. He is fifty years of age, perhaps, and speaks several languages to perfection. As he has been a wanderer for many years, and for a long time was the principal chief of the Crow Indians, his adventures are extremely interesting. He chills the blood of the green young miners, who, unacquainted with the arts of war and subjugation, congregate around him by the cold-blooded manner in which he relates the Indian fights that he has been engaged in. There is quite a band of this wild people herding a few miles below us, and, soon after my arrival, it was confidently affirmed and believed by many that they were about to make a murderous attack upon the miners. This man, who can make himself understood in almost any language, and has a great deal of influence over all Indians, went to see them, and told them that such an attempt would result in their own certain destruction. They said that they had never thought of such a thing, that the Americans were like the grass in the valleys, and the Indians fewer than the flowers of the Sierra Nevada. Among other oddities there is a person here who is a rabid admirer of Lippert. I have heard him gravely affirm that Lippert was the greatest author the world ever saw, and that if one of his novels and the most fascinating work of ancient or modern times lay side by side, he would choose the former, even though he had already repeatedly perused it. He studies Lippert just as other folks do Shakespeare, and yet the man has read and admires the majestic prose of Chilton, and is quite familiar with the best English classics. He is a Quaker, and his merciless and unmitigated regard for truth is comically grand, and nothing amuses me more than to draw out that peculiar characteristic. For instance, after talking at him the most beautiful and eloquent things I can think of, I will pitilessly nail him in this wise. Now I know that you agree with me, Mr. Blank. It is the richest and broadest farce in this flattering and deceitful world to see him look right into my eyes while he answers smilingly, without the least evasion or reserve, the astounding truth. I have not heard a word that you have been saying for the last half-hour. I have been thinking of something else. His dreamland reveries on these occasions are supposed to be a profound meditation upon the character and writings of his pet author. I am always glad to have him visit us, as some one of us is sure to be most unflatteringly electrified by his uncompromising veracity. I am myself generally the victim, as I make it a point to give him every opportunity for the display of this unusual peculiarity. Not but that I have had disagreeable truth told me often enough, but heretofore people have done it out of spitefulness. But Mr. Blank— who is the kindest-hearted of mortals, never dreams that his merciless frankness can possibly wound one's self-love. But the great man, officially considered, of the entire river is the squire, as he is jestingly called. It has been rumoured for some time that we were about to become a law and order-loving community, and when I requested an explanation, I was informed that a man had gone all the way to Hamilton, the county seat, to get himself made into a justice of the peace. Many shook their wise heads, and doubted, even if suited to the situation, which they say he is not, whether he would take here, and certain rebel spirits affirmed that he would be invited to walk over the hill before he had been in the community twenty-four hours, which is a polite way these free and easy young people have of turning out of town an obnoxious individual. Not that the squire is particularly objectionable per se, but in virtue of his office, and his supposed ineligibility to fill the same. 
Besides, the people here wish to have the fun of ruling themselves. Miners are as fond of playing at law-making and dispensing as French novelists are of playing at providence. They say, also, that he was not elected by the voice of the people, but that his personal friends nominated and voted for him unknown to the rest of the community. This is perhaps true. At least, I have heard some of the most respectable men here observe that had they been aware of the squire's name being up as candidate for an office which, though insignificant elsewhere, is one of great responsibility in a mining community, they should certainly have gone against his election. Last night I had the honour of an introduction to His Honour. Imagine a middle-sized man, quite stout, with a head disproportionately large, crowned with one of those immense foreheads eked out with a slight baldness, wonder if, according to the flattering popular superstition, he has thought his hair off, which enchant phrenologists, but which one never sees brooding above the soulful orbs of the great ones of the earth, a smooth, fat face, grey eyes, and prominent chin, the tout ensemble characterized by an expression of the utmost meekness and gentleness, which expression contrasts rather funnily with a satanic goatee and you have our good squire. You know, M., that it takes the same kind of power, differing, of course, in degree, to govern twenty men that it does to rule a million, and although the squire is sufficiently intelligent, and the kindest-hearted creature in the world, he evidently does not possess that peculiar tact, talent, gift, or whatever it is called, which makes Napoleons, Mahomets, and Cromwells, and which is absolutely necessary to keep in order such a strangely amalgamated community, representing, as it does, the four quarters of the globe, as congregates upon this river. However, I suppose that we must take the goods the gods provide, satisfied that if our King Log does no good, he is too sincerely desirous of fulfilling his duty to do any harm." but i really feel sorry for this mere young daniel come to judgment when i think of the gauntlet which the wicked wits will make him run when he tries his first cause however the squire may after all succeed as yet he has had no opportunity of making use of his credentials in putting down miner's law which is of course the famous code of judge lynch in the meantime we all sincerely pray that he may be successful in his laudable undertaking for justice in the hands of a mob, however respectable, is at best a fearful thing. End of letter eight. Recorded by Rachel Ellen at Yosemite, California, April twenty seventh, two thousand eight.